Welcome to the Words Matter Library. Welcome to the Words Matter Library, brought to you by Audible. In 2019, we may finally know once and for all how much Donald Trump is really worth. That's why this week we are adding executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion Tim O'Brien's book, Trump Nation, The Art of Being Donald, to the Words Matter Audible Library. As we head into a decisive political year that will inevitably be filled with legal drama for Donald Trump, his children, and many Trump associates, it's worth revisiting Tim's seminal book on the inner workings of Trump Incorporated. This is a book he wrote over a decade ago, long before we knew that Donald Trump would ever end up in the White House. And as you're reading it, remember, this book caused Donald Trump to file a $5 billion lawsuit against Tim O'Brien for misunderstanding Trump's net worth. Steve and I are pleased to welcome the executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion and the author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being Donald, Tim O'Brien. Thanks for having me here, Elise. And Steve, it's good to be with both of you. Thank you for coming. So just to start, can you tell us when you became aware of Donald Trump and what made you interested in starting to cover Donald Trump? You know, Trump first popped on the, you know, the sort of media business landscape in the, in the mid-1980s, and that was when I was in college in Washington. And and he didn't really register on my radar at all then. Uh, I lived abroad for a while. I first came to New York for grad school. And in 1989, I enrolled at Columbia University. I was in a joint degree program in journalism and business. And one of the lectures presented to us one day in the spring of 1990 was from Wayne Barrett, who was a classic investigative reporter with The Village Voice. He had just written a bestseller with Jack Newfield called City for Sale, which remains one of the sort of classic investigative books of uh, metropolitan investigative reporting, holding politicians accountable. In that case, it was the Democratic machine in New York that they had held accountable. And uh, the success of that book got Wayne a contract for another book uh, about a young and, and very prominent real estate developer named Donald Trump. And when Wayne came to Columbia to talk about his goals for the book, uh, he also made it known that he was looking for a research assistant. And that, to me, was like red meat. And I thought I could learn a lot from him. And and I essentially apprenticed myself to Wayne uh, for about two years. It was 1990 to around 1992 with some gaps because uh, I, I kept studying and kept on my, my uh, doing my work there. But, for example, during the summer of 1990, we lived in Wayne's Beach House in Atlantic City and we just collected documents, all of the uh, licensing documents that Trump had to submit to with the Casino Control Commission in Atlantic City, the Division of Gaming Enforcement Records, Security and Exchange Records. Really back in the era pre-internet when everything was on paper and Wayne, the stuff that Wayne and I collected is still one of the sort of seminal collections of paperwork on Donald Trump from about the early 1970s to around 1992. And so that was my first exposure to Donald Trump. What made Wayne interested in Donald Trump originally well, as one of the great investigative journalists of our time? And, and Wayne, who uh, passed away uh, the day before Trump was inaugurated. I think he decided he was going to escape just in time. You know, Wayne, uh, Jack Newfield, his partner on the, on the City for Sale book, told Wayne in the, in the mid-1970s, you should take a look at this guy, Donald Trump. He comes from a very connected father. They're very tied into the Democratic machine. There's these interesting intersections between New York real estate and the New York political scene. And if you told the story of this guy's rise, you could also look at what's happening in New York now in the 1970s. 
And Wayne did a pair of long cover stories for The Village Voice about Trump. It was really the first long examination of Trump. He was not a known quantity at that time. And he actually discovered, for example, that the Trumps uh, had been violating you know, civil rights laws, discriminating against um, applicants to get leases or, or rent apartments in, in the Trump collection of housing in, outer, out in the outer boroughs of New York. And that launched a Justice Department investigation of Trump. And famously, Trump retained Roy Cohn in that litigation. And from that moment on, Trump became very aware of Wayne Barrett, and they sort of ended up becoming these sort of polar forces in New York life at that time, the, you know, the, the sort of investigating uh, arm of New York journalism, and, and then Trump as, as an increasingly prominent real estate figure. And then Trump became, I think, bigger than Wayne could have anticipated, you know, even by the, you know, by the late 1980s, Donald Trump was this unusual person who had, had traction in the popular imagination as the sort of rich guy that most average folks would want to be like if they ever struck it rich. Uh, you know, he talked the talk of average folks. He disdained some of the, the perks of Manhattan wealth, uh, the social circuit, the charity circuit, uh, the culture circuit. You know, he was a guy who liked to watch sports, eat cheeseburgers, be with flashy women, and live a little bit like, like a Caesar. So when you started out the research of Donald Trump and you're getting to know him as a subject, your impression of him was what? He's smart. He's talented. He's brilliant. He's crooked. He's all of the above. He's a showman. He's a fraud. He's worse than the mean. What is your first well, you've sort impression of him that starts there. to form? All of it there, Steve. But you know, in the beginning, I just didn't know enough about him to actually have a conclusion. You know, I, I learned about him through the reporting. And I never had, uh, during the time that I was working with Wayne, the one time that I had sort of, that I was in the same room with Trump was at his birthday party in Atlantic City. I think it was around his, it's probably like his 45th or 46th birthday party, uh, in which uh, he decided to have it in the auditorium at the Taj Mahal. And because they couldn't get enough people to attend, they actually put an ad in the local newspaper that anyone could come. So Wayne and I saw this, and we went. As soon as they saw Wayne there outside the theater, they arrested Wayne. But I got in. And I saw Trump sort of as the master of ceremonies on a stage at his own birthday party. That's the first time I ever physically saw him. And then uh, in the mid-'90s, I did a gambling book, sort of a history, a social history of gambling in America. And I interviewed him in his office for that book for about two hours. And uh, that was the first time I was ever one-on-one -on -one with him. That was around 1995 or so. And, uh, you know, I definitely then knew that he was a con artist of the first order because I knew at that point I knew a lot about gambling. I knew a lot about the casino industry. I knew a lot about New York politics and New York real estate. And at every turn, he was selling smoke. And one of his great strengths, and it's also his great weakness, is that he sells illusion about himself and his goals. And he is so um, megalomaniacal about it and so completely self-absorbed that he often believes his own stories. And that's one of the things that allows him to survive defeat and survive the wreckage of bad business decisions or bad marital choices or bad personal relationships is he just keeps going because there's this tape running in his mind all the time that he's the star of his own show. And he'll say anything he needs to say to make sure that people are, are entranced. And that, that was really the first time I face-to-face I, -face witnessed him in this Barnum-esque way. 
And then several years later in 2003, I was at the New York Times. I was a, a senior feature writer for the paper covering uh, for the Sunday business section. And that w- that coincided with the rise of The Apprentice. And I had never thought I would write about this guy again. And then suddenly The Apprentice emerges and it gives him the second life. Certainly by the end of the 1980s and early 1990s, Trump was essentially a punchline in New York about the excesses of the 80s. And The, and the Apprentice resurrected him completely and, and in a national way. A whole national audience that didn't know any of his New York history – became entranced by him. And, and, and then I began covering for the paper, and we spent a lot of time together at that point. He probably called me three times a week. He would send me letters multiple times during the week with clippings about him, traveled on his jet. I was at his offices and homes, traveled down to Palm Beach with him and Melania, and then worked on a book that he cooperated with, the biography. For the book, he got famously very upset, and this is the $5 billion lawsuit that you irreparably harmed his net worth and his future livelihood by reporting his income, right. which you reported as, I believe you gave an estimate of... Between $150 million and $350 million. One of the big differences in that number was the value of his casino companies which were publicly traded. They were, on, they were about to go into bankruptcy. Uh, for At that point, it would have been, I think, the, the third time he put his casinos into bankruptcy. Um, so that was the variable. But at the time, over the course of a year, he had told me his net worth was anywhere from about $1.7 billion to as much as $9 billion. It was always uh, variable because he lived in his little Trump Bolivia, you know, where his, his, his wealth inflated on a, on a radical scale from day to day. And there was a method in the madness around that, at least, because spec- he knew that speculation about his wealth he used it as a sort of ping pong ball with the business press as, you know, how much money is he worth and, and where does he rank on the Forbes 400? You know, the Forbes 400 as a, a sort of pecking order of wealth in the United States came into being right at the same time that he rose as a sort of public figure. And he really exploited people's fascination in this country with wealth and rankings around that particular thing, the Forbes 400 to be available to reporters and to keep that idea that he was super wealthy in public. And it was he, – he wildly lied or exaggerated about how much money he had. And he never was – weirdly, he was never really authentically called upon it. Something in your book that I found interesting was that you said despite his obsession with the lavish lifestyle, with women, wealth was his true passion in life. And so of all the lies that he told you, was lying about his net worth the biggest lie? I don't know if it's the biggest. It's certainly – and I didn't really understand until I reported it out and and began interviewing him about it how deeply it struck a nerve with him and how much his own identity was wrapped up in this notion of him being a billionaire. And it's it's, it's a measure of both his need to spin public perception about him and also how deeply insecure he is. And, you know, I think whenever he's in front of a crowd, he has this almost – it's almost like a poker tell. He'll say to people at any of his political rallies or in interviews, he'll say, I'm a really rich guy. I'm worth like $10 billion. OK. Or I'm a really smart guy. I went to Wharton. OK. Or, you know, women really like me. I can get dates with lots of women. OK. Almost any time he punctuates a sentence with OK, it's something he's insecure about, his wealth, his intellect, or his sex appeal. There's, there's an – 
a mashup for somebody to do on videos to pull all this together. But it's al- almost like when he's with those crowds, when he's saying, okay, he wants them to come back to him and say, yes, we believe you. We know you're rich. We know you're sexy. We know you're smart. And he's not entirely sure himself. And the wealth was a real, you know, that was two, about two pages of my book. And the amount of money he sued me for was essentially the difference between what my sources and reporting had, had indicated his wealth might be and what he had been saying it was. Is he a billionaire? Uh, you know, I'd have to, I'd, you, you, you need to know his debt. What I can comfortably say is he's nowhere near being worth $10 billion, which is the number he's had out for, you know, the last two years. Reporters at Bloomberg think it's, you know, a little bit more than $2 billion. Um, to really know what the number is, you'd need to know about all of his debts. And one of the things he does is he puts out these inflated figures about things he owns or doesn't own, and then he never really reveals how much debt he has. I think one of the things he's really worried about in the Mueller investigation, and and that's one of the reasons I think the Stormy Daniels piece of this is so interesting, is they paid Stormy Daniels through an LLC, a limited liability corporation, and all these little shell companies. Trump parks a lot of debt in those. He transacts through those. And to the extent that Mueller is going to pierce the veil, which is, can be hard to do in lawsuits, of all of these little shell companies that make up the Trump organization, he's going to get an, a window onto how much debt Trump really has and where money is coming in from overseas. Was he ever vulnerable to a prosecution in New York or New Jersey at a state level or at a federal level over these years, in your view? And if he was, how did he get out of it? Well, for, he, he, he's been investigated for – he and his family were investigated for discrimination in, in, their, in their housing complexes against people of color. Um, he got out of that one by essentially weaponizing the legal system using Roy Cohn – when every other real estate developer was just settling with the Justice Department, the Trumps fought back and said they were being unfair targets of discrimination. He's had the SEC look at him for making false statements for inv- to investors about his, the accounting practices at his casinos, uh, which, which were at one point a publicly traded company. The FBI in Atlantic City took a look at him uh, in, the, in the early 80s around some of his partnerships there. Trump's first, first partners when he went to Atlantic City were mobbed up. Uh, the first two guys he did a deal with there was a labor racketeer from New York named Danny Sullivan and a bagman for the Philadelphia mob. And he was he was a subject of both law enforcement and regulatory scrutiny for that. So can you talk a little bit about how the lawsuit proceeded with Donald Trump suing you, how many years it went on for, how he performed in the deposition? Well, I was saying is when you got the lawsuit and say $5 billion, they said, like, are you like, is that American money? Five billion was definitely more than I got for the advance for the book. That was for sure. You know, it was so funny because he kept when I was worried. So I worked. The book came out in the fall of 2005. And he kept saying to me during the book, you know, I don't know. I'm just going to sue you. And I would say to him, if you want to sue me in the end, why did you even cooperate with the book to begin with? And he said, well, I'll give you three reasons. He said the first one was I really, really like you, which I don't think was true. But I think it was because I was at The New York Times. And I think that The Times has always mattered to him. The second thing he said is, I also consider it a challenge. I really want to see if I can convert you. And the third and one of the most interesting things he said was, I don't really care what you write anyway because I essentially have like my own printing press. I can go right to the media. I can go to them directly. If I'll go onto the Today Show and say you're a nut job or I'll call up page six of the New York Post and say that you had you, you operated in bad faith. And, you know, that's in the pre-Twitter, pre-Facebook era. This is 2005. And even then he knew he had this ability to go around media. 
and to tell his own story. Nonetheless, he cooperated. The book comes out in the fall of 2005. In January of 20, 2006, he sued me for libel for $6 billion, $5 billion, which was essentially the difference between what he said his net worth was and what my sources said it was. So that's how he arrived at that number. Does that cause anxiety? Is that stressful or are you just sitting there like this guy is completely full of shit and I have nothing to worry about here? Um, you know, personally, I did not feel stressed. And my wife uh, is a lawyer and I think she thought this was perverse. But you know, I had worked very hard on that. I'm a, I'm a careful reporter. We all make mistakes as reporters, but I, I taped our conversations. I had documentation. I really reported the heck out of that book. Uh, some of what was in the book that he was suing me for was stuff I had written in the New York Times that he hadn't acted upon. So I felt confident about it, but you never know when something like that happened, who else is going to get pulled into it. And in fact, you know, he deposed Arthur Sulzberger, the publisher of the New York Times. He deposed my editors only to harass them, right? He deposed my brothers. His basis for getting a court to approve those depositions was they mirrored my hard drive on my computer at the New York Times, and they got all my email. And in various emails, people expressed thoughts about what was the book going to look like or where would it go. And in a libel case, you know, you have to prove malice. And so he took these potential interactions with these various people on email as indicators of malice. So they deposed those folks. It was always stressful to me to see people I cared about or were close to put under his sort of blunderbuss. But I have to say, you know, they deposed me for two days and we deposed him for two days, both two eight-hour sessions. And to me, getting deposed was like being on Jeopardy. I enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, again, that drives my wife's nuts, I have to say. You know, when I came home and I told her, you know, it was sort of enjoyable and she was <laughs> she was not on the program with that, that thought. But again, I felt in command of the facts. I knew what I set out to do with the book. And if you read the book, it doesn't scalp him. I think it really takes him in in his this sort of rotund, bizarre Trumpiness, you know, the, the, the good and the bad. And, and I think it's an accurate portrayal of who he is. He doesn't want accurate portrayals out there. And I think it really bothered him at the end of the day particularly around the net worth and and this very accurate telling of what his true business history was, is he doesn't want to be known. Did he enjoy his two days of deposition? Um, you know, he may have at the time, and that's really interesting, right, in the current atmosphere we're in right now with the Mueller investigation where he's saying to the press that, uh, well, or, or someone in the White House is telling, you know, my former colleagues at the New York Times and, and the Washington Post that, that he'd be willing to sit down with Mueller because he thinks he can convince Mueller that, you know, everything's okay. And his lawyers are saying, no, 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 that, you know, danger lies there. And his lawyers are totally right. I think he thought when he walked into the deposition with my attorneys that he was going to win the day or both days. And my attorney, by the way, at the time was a woman named Mary Jo White. She was a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. She had prosecuted the mob. She had prosecuted the first World Trade Center bombing. Uh, she was a dev of boys in Plimpton, a very high-quality, white-collar defense practitioner with two deputies, Andrew Levine and Andrew Ceresny, who were great lawyers. Plus, in the background, I had David McCraw the New York Times, the in-house counsel there. He's also been around the block. And Donald Trump had Mark Kasowitz, who I don't think he had ever done a libel suit before. And we just stripped the bark off these guys like old trees. And, you know, the two days that, that he got deposed by our lawyers – it ended up being almost like a Rosetta Stone for understanding who Trump was because the fact that he sued me about his wealth opened him up in the discovery process to us getting his tax returns, his banking records, and his business records. And we got all those things. 
I think I'm probably, I'm certainly the only reporter who's seen a large chunk of his tax returns and probably one of the few people outside the Trump organization who has. And so as we, as my attorneys questioned him during this deposition, we had paperwork. So we could say, well, you said, you know, you've said that you got X amount of dollars in that condo sale. Well, actually, this is the real number. You say you get, you know, a million dollars of speech from the learning annex. It's actually $400,000 on and on and on. Just how much money he had. You know, I said in the book that at one point when he almost went personally bankrupt, that he borrowed about $30 million from his father, which he denied, denied, denied. But I had that cold. And I just put it in the book with me laying it out and him saying, I put my word on it. I'm, I can give you my word. I never got money from my father. And of course, then we got the documents that showed that he had. And we asked him about it in deposition. And he had to acknowledge it. So the, the case began in 2006. He lost it. It got dismissed in 2009. He appealed that. Uh, and he lost it on appeal in 2011. Uh, the Wall Street Journal did a big front page story about the deposition after he lost the case because it became a public document. He wanted that deposition to be sealed. And my attorneys essentially attached it to some of the court motions, making it a, a public document. And then I thought it would – I thought sort of this would all go away. And then in 2015, you know, he rolls down the escalator at Trump Tower and the deposition became relevant again. Was he agile on his feet? What was he like under pressure? Was he under pressure? He was totally under pressure, and he was cornered, and he was not agile. He lied during the deposition. Uh, I think he was embarrassed by the revelations in that deposition. He had to acknowledge, I think, at least 30 times during the course of that deposition that he had lied about material things, about his business record uh, and statements he had made publicly. And that was very germane to our suit because part of the book – was this examination of how he lies about so many aspects of his life. He's, he's very pathologic. Was he angry? Was he able to be provoked? Oh, he's very able to be provoked. And, and, uh, and Mark Kasowitz's attorney had to jump in a few times to try to steer the conversation in another direction. And I think his lawyers, current lawyers, who are defending him in the Mueller investigation, I imagine they're well aware of that deposition. And they see it as a big red alert not to get this guy to sit down for a deposition. We were talking before the show. I said, you know, for me, I'm 46 years old. I grew up in northern New Jersey. So he, he's been front and center in my consciousness, you know, since I was about, you know, 10, 12 years old, you know, from Trump the board game and, and everything else. When when you look at him today, has he lost a step? Is is he a figure in decline mentally from a, from an agility perspective? Is he... His, his cadence of speech to me is materially different than it was 20 years ago. It used to be a lot faster, a lot more firm. There's a lot of slur in the words. There's a, a slowness in the speech that didn't used to be there. You pick any of that up? I definitely do. I think it's tricky to sort of pinpoint where that comes from. He's a 72-year-old man. I imagine he weighs about 260 or 270 pounds, although his physician says otherwise. That's certainly a lot heavier than he was when he was in his prime, he was a tall drink of water for most of his life. Um, let, me, let me tell you, if that guy weighs 260, you and I weigh about 145. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that. I'm on board with that idea. I, I think they said 225 or something like that when his that fake kind of, you know, physician's report came out. And I just thought, no way. But He's really in incredible health. Tim. Yes, he is. He's the, in the best health of any president who's ever occupied the White House. Um so I think some of it certainly – I think there's times when he's really tired, but certainly when he's on the road and these overseas trips where his, his speech becomes even slurry and lackadaisical. However, I think this guy is a very unusual 
person. He is the energizer bunny of modern American politics. He has this hunger to be in the public eye and to spin tales in a, in a way that I don't think people fully understand. He won't go away. You know, it, the, the Trumpism is, you know, if he gets elected a second time, you know, then, you know, for a second term, we've got six more years of it with him in the White House. But I also think this phenomenon that he's unleashed, he sort of ripped this Band-Aid off who we are as Americans and what really lies beneath. And he and I think he's I think Trumpism will last beyond him. And I think he loves that. I, I think he I, I don't think he wants to walk away from it. And I think he some of his faculties may have gotten blurred. But I think as a performance artist, which is what he which is what he truly is, is that he's in full command of his tools. How has his legal strategy mirrored what you went through? That's such a good question. You know, I'm I'm of the belief that it's always a mistake to talk about strategy in any capacity with Donald Trump because he's not a strategic thinker. He's Mr. Id. You know, he he lacks the intellectual sophistication, the patience and the discipline to have a strategy about anything or to to retain talented people and build teams. He is a solo pilot of the first order. And he just doesn't take advice from other people, whether they're business consultants or political consultants or lawyers. I think and this might be splitting hairs. However, he's goal oriented. He doesn't have a strategy, but he's goal oriented. And I think there are only two goals you need to look at with Donald Trump to understand how he rolls. There's two lenses. One is self-aggrandizement and the other is self-preservation. And when he fired Jim Comey, it was all about self-preservation. And his posture towards the Mueller investigation is all about self-preservation. So the legal approach will be about preserving Donald Trump at all costs, even if other people get thrown on the bus. What about Don Jr.? If Don Jr. happens to be the one... Or Ivanka. That that's going to be the first time he's going to experience his willingness, this sort of almost, almost depraved ability he has to let everyone else be sacrificed in the service of his own needs, needs. Should this come into the, you know, the the family room, I think he's going to be faced with some interesting choices. And I think at that point he'll fire Mueller, you know, before he, you know, before Don or Ivanka go down. But when you get away from the family, people in the White House, they can get their heads cut off. He, he won't really care. And I don't think the people who work with him understand, understand that about him. You know, he's very dangerous in that way. Is he a dangerous person? Absolutely. But let's define what is dangerous. I think danger is making bad choices that hurt the broader community in the service of yourself, whether that's making bad policy decisions or uh, having your hand on the nuclear button. Uh, I think those kinds of things are dangerous because, you know, the United States is the biggest, the most dynamic economy in the world, unlike any other country in the history of the world. But we're not solo. We're not in the world alone anymore. And we, and we certainly aren't with a rising China. And I think the Chinese look at this and they laugh. So economically on trade and tariffs, I think we're making horrible decisions that will have a long-term detrimental effect on the U.S. economy. And Trump does that because it makes him feel grandiose. And then I think should he get cornered in the Mueller investigation, I really don't think he would hesitate to go beyond just rattling the saber with North Korea or with Iran. Uh, in the service of acting unilaterally so glory, attention, or safety accrues to himself. Well, what could be more self-aggrandizing than being the wartime president? 
Correct, and and I think well, they are. He already is technically, although he doesn't acknowledge it. But right, right, and and I think he likes being at war, and in, in in you know culturally, politically, and mili- in in a military sense, you know his inability to build teams and actually be a good manager. You know, and a completely to me, this is nonpartisan, non-ideological observations. This is just it, whoever's in the White House should be a good manager. He or she should be a great manager to begin with. It's a big bureaucracy. If you want to get things done, you should be process-oriented. This guy is none of those things. And 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 any, everything that would have made his first term successful on paper that required him to do teamwork, whether it was overturning Obamacare or, or you know, providing new health care legislation, he bungled for the most part. And I think what he's come to learn is his comfort zone is is unilateral, executive orders on things like immigration or foreign policy. And and you really see this lately in, in terms of his meetings with Putin in Helsinki or, you know, his threats against Rouhani in Iran recently or, or that whole charade with Kim. He has this notion that he can do what he wants on the world stage unfettered. And that's always where he's happiest. Take us inside the organization. Is there is there a hierarchy amongst the kids that Don Jr. gets saved before Eric, <laughs> Ivanka before Don Jr.? <laughs> that you know the, the double yellow line here is the Ivanka line, not the Don Jr. one. Yeah, I would say that that certainly Ivanka is first among equals by a long shot. I think Trump has a longstanding and slightly perverse fascination with his daughter. You think? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. But I think, you know, people, it's it's still one of those sort of third rails to get into. But I think Trump is a profound racist and racial thinker. And he often talks about having great genes. And, and he sees people in racial terms. And I think he sees Ivanka as this genetic expression of himself, that she's almost perfect. and And he prides himself on that. And... I think he's a little dismissive with the other children that he sees as less than perfect. And I mean that in purely physical terms. I think he's proud of Don Jr. because Don Jr. is an attack dog. Don Jr. helped him court the far right in the GOP and in the sort of Trump's populist base. I think he has a strong level of disdain for the rest of the kids. So I would say that, that Ivanka, first and foremost, yeah, head of the class. And then Don Jr. is allowed to sit in one of the front rows. And then he doesn't really care after that. It's interesting that I guess I'd never thought about it until you just said it, that he looks at a beautiful woman and I guess sees himself staring back. (laughs) He doesn't. And he'll often say anybody who meets him, you know, he will say, wow, you know, you look good. I like this or that. He talks to people very directly about their physicality. Uh, And it's again, I think it's this dualism. I think he's also insecure about his about himself physically. And he's often he's thinking about his insecurities and trying to identify them in other people all the time. It's like a tape running in his head. You know, I think um, the question about the Trump organization as an organization is also constantly funny to me because they present themselves as this Fortune 500 company on Fifth Avenue, you know, operating out of the top of Trump Tower. Dun, 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 dun. And in reality, it's like a mom and pop shop. It's, you know, it's, they have a handful of employees most of its history has involved a cult of personality that's made money around promoting Donald Trump as a brand. And he's been willing to slap it on everything from underwear to mattresses to vodka to steaks to magazines. You name it, if there's a if there's a bag of money on the table, he'll let you put his name on it. And one of the reasons for that, and, and again, the business press talks about Trump pivoting to 
different businesses where he could get cash up front, la, la, la. None of this was strategic or pivoting. Donald Trump stood up some of the biggest banks in the country for almost – for more than $3 billion in the early 1990s. After that, he could never get a big commercial bank loan except from Deutsche Bank, which is another story. And so he relied on businesses where he could just get cash. And it's a, it's really kind of a – it's a very boutique operation that exists deal to deal and he wants to get cash over the door. And, and that's been his motivation. And he got cash over the door, a lot of Russian money. Yeah, I think the media has been a little bit conspiratorial in the in the Trump-Russia money thing. And I subscribe to the notion that there definitely is something there. But I think there's been a sort of pell-mell. Anyone who's Russian in his orbit de facto means there's something dirty going on. And the reality is when you're running a, a – you know, in New York, London or Hong Kong, if you're in high-end real estate, you're going to get people who are buying your, your condos either to launder money or just as a safe investment because they come from countries where those aren't available. And every real estate operator in those three cities deals with clientele like that. But he has had a high preponderance of Russian buyers in his condos. But generally when they buy those condos, the relationship ends. So this famous statement of, of Don Jr. saying, you know, most of our assets come from Russia. Uh, Don Jr. is not a world-class uh, scientist, as, as most of the members of the Trump family are not. And come on. I'm, I'm telling you that. I'm telling you that right here. My, you know, one of my favorite things is when they were on Howard Stern, Don Jr., Ivanka, and Donald Trump, and Howard Stern popped a quick question to Don Jr., what is 16 times 7? And, and and these sort of like blank scales pop up on Don's eyes and he sort of he, – he figures out and he comes up with a crazy – 218? Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't know. I might struggle myself. <laughs> well, Ivanka begins laughing and so, so Howard Stern says to Ivanka, well, what is it, Ivanka? And she doesn't come up with a number and she said, you don't really need to know that stuff to be good at business. So the, the Potter Familius decides to rescue the children, Donald Trump, and he's rocking along and he says, it's 11-12. 16 times 7, it's 11, 12, and, and Howard Stern is just wondering. So it is on tape that the Trumps have trouble with math. Well, and that was something in the deposition he famously said that his net worth is what he feels. At any given time and any given day, and he can't really put the number down. Or or when he was, you know, he was asked about how much his golf courses were worth, and he said, I don't really know. And we said, you don't have a profit and loss statement to make you, because you're telling us it's worth a certain amount of money. So how do you decide how much it's worth? And he said, mental projections. So what do you make of how Donald Trump behaved standing next to Vladimir Putin in Helsinki and the body language, the defiance? Well, I think this goes back to Steve's earlier question about Trump and Russian money. I, Russian money, I think, you know, there's this big unanswered uh, issue, which is in the mid 2000s, uh, the Trumps go on a shopping spree and they spend about $400 million. And Eric Trump has said that they didn't get that money from loans. They got it from, from the cash flow generated by their businesses, and they didn't sell anything to raise that money. People need to really take a good hard look as to where that money came from. And it was during that period of time, for example, that he, that he was involved in the Trump Soho Hotel in Lower Manhattan in a project with a company that was mobbed up, that had Russian mobsters in it. His, his, one of the closest associates with him on that was Felix Sater, a career criminal. I think that, that those kind of transactions in the U.S. rather than stuff in Russia is where investigators might make hay. And I think the reason that is relevant beyond the fact that he may have had dirty associations is it raises this quid pro quo issue, which is did the Trump campaign 
and then the Trump administration engage in any talks with Russia about changing policy for financial favors. For example, lifting economic sanctions on Russia or changing U.S. policy towards uh, the Russians' annexation of Crimea. And that gets you to Helsinki and, and the very strange performance on a national stage in which Trump essentially said, I doubt my own investigators. I, I, I doubt American law enforcement, the FBI, my intelligence community. I think we should give Vladimir Putin a break. And I think everyone watching that thought to themselves, what is he getting out of doing that? And I would suggest that it's a, it's a reasonable question to wonder if there's financial favors in exchange for policy changes. Let me ask you this question, which is that when you see him standing next to Vladimir Putin, person you have written books on that you have covered for nearly 30 years, have you ever seen him so submissive around another human being? That's such a great question. I would say only people he's trying to do business deals with when they're making joint public appearances, somebody he needs money or a business deal with. In general, he, does, he is not deferential to other people on, in a public forum. He's almost incapable of it. He is not a deferential person. There are some who say that <clears throat> Vladimir Putin is the richest person on the planet by the, by the amount of money that's been stolen in the Kremlin kleptocracy um, with, a, with a net worth that, that, could, that could exceed $200 billion, according to, to some estimates. Whether it's true or not, is Trump intimidated by that? Does he, does he admire it? What, what is at the core of the Putin fetish, which, which he clearly has? Uh, envy. I think raw envy. I don't, I don't think he's afraid of it. I think, he, I think he admires it. I think he admires the fact that Putin is an autocrat and can do as he pleases. I think he admires the fact that Putin can murder or jail his, his political opponents. I think he admires the fact that, that Putin can stick his hand in the Russian fiscal till whenever he wants to. You know, Vladimir Putin doesn't need to put money abroad. Those stories always seem sort of interesting to me because he can take money out of the Russian system in any aspect anytime he wants to. And I think that that also explains Trump's affinity for for strong, uh, strong-handed autocratic leaders like Kim or Xi or Putin. It, it, it's interesting to me that he's gone out of his way to court them while publicly undermining Angela Merkel or Theresa May, who are running democracies. Do you think if Trump could shut down newspapers in this country that are critical of him, he would? He would because he would love doing it, and then he would be bereft like a drug addict because you, Donald Trump is a media addict. Do, do you think he would lock up political opponents if he could? Absolutely. I, it's I think, really dark. But do we need to doubt it? No, you know, I think you're right, but I think we're at that point. You've studied him more than pretty much anyone. Yeah, you know, when he first came on back on the scene in 2015 and 2016 and reporters were complaining about – covering him at the political rallies and then when he first came into the White House that Sean Spicer was a jerk in press conferences. I was, you know, I sort of felt like if they're jerks in press conferences, don't go to the press conference. You don't need to be there to cover the White House. And, and, I, and you know, in the media, we have the benefit of we can, we have forums for sharing our ideas with, with, with the public, with our community, and that's a huge privilege. I've become in recent months very concerned. Uh, I've gotten more hateful email and threats than I did in the past. Uh, I, I'm not – I'm concerned about my colleagues who are really in the front lines of this with him. And you see it when 
the enemy of the state rhetoric that he's now made so famous, that he's deploying the rhetoric of dictators who have killed or jailed or shut down media in the past. He, that's the language he's using. And he's using it against reporters who are surrounded in, in, at some of his rallies by his supporters who are hostile to the media. So he's putting the reporters in dangerous positions. And again, I don't think this is partisan or ideological. I think, I think we're a community here in the United States. We can have civilized disagreements about policy and values, but they should be civilized. And no one here should have to be afraid they're going to be hurt. Here's something I wrestle with. Um, you said earlier that he's not strategic. But I think there's a difference between being strategic and deliberate. And I think that there's five behaviors that we see out of him. And the first is the incitement of fervor in a cult of personality with constant lying at mass rallies. Do you think that's deliberate? I think it's totally deliberate. I think and because he'd be incapable of doing otherwise, one, because he's wildly ill-informed. He's an ignoramus. And then secondly, he loves fomenting sensationalism and he fortunately landed in the post-2008 America, you know, where, where, where a lot of average Americans are hurting. And, and he's appealing to their pain with bad prescriptions. When, when, he, when he scapegoats minority populations, is that deliberate? I think it's totally deliberate. Uh, you know, he had a chance during his campaign to disavow David Duke and, and white supremacists that have been floating in the Trump world for quite a while. He didn't. He had a chance after Charlottesville to make a strong statement. He didn't. Uh, in his the, the Trump organization, for the most part, has been a lily white organization. The only people of color he's ever really associated with in his professional life were entertainers and athletes. When he alleges conspiracies, the deep state, nefarious forces at work, working at behest of the scapegoated populations, do you think that's deliberate? I think it is deliberate. I think it's it. I think his goal, and he said it recently, he said, "Don't believe what you see, don't believe what you read, believe what I say." And any individual that does that, the, their, their goal is to undermine the idea of objective truth and objective reality. And you do that by saying, don't trust anyone else around you. So, yeah, Steve, I think that's completely deliberate. Well, so to close on that note, what can we do better in the media to report on the Trump administration? Um, I think we have to really hew to the fact pattern. I, I still believe that people – and you see it. I, I think there's a reason subscriptions to traditional newspapers went up in the wake of the Trump presidency or the Trump election is that people are hungry for at least what appears to be objective truth. Media makes tons of mistakes. I make tons of mistakes all the time. But facts are all of our friends. And I think I think speculation, whether it's in the form of, of commentary, which I do now – or newspaper reporting is problematic. And I think facts will prove to be our friend. I think, you know, I, I would quote Marty Baron, you know, the, the, the media is not going to war, we're going to work. And we just have to do what we've been doing all the time, which is, is have a respect for our readers, for diverse view, opinions, and the fact pattern. And then to be a little bit lighter, you've been on the receiving end of a negative tweet. I'll read it. Uh, he said, he tweeted to Anderson Cooper, has the absolutely worst anti-Trump talking heads on his show. Dopey writer O'Brien knows nothing about me or my wealth. A waste. <laughs> and you survived. You seem to be thriving. You're living a nice, happy life. Do you have any advice for Republicans in Congress who are so petrified of being on the receiving end of a Trump tweet and how they can, too, 
challenge Trump and survive? Well, I'm in the fortunate position of not having to run for office. And so I know that for those folks being, you know, on the opposite end of Trump's gun um, may have electoral consequences. But by and large, who cares what Donald Trump thinks about anyone else personally? He is not an exemplar to anyone else in our society. He's debased the public dialogue. I don't think he's a good conservative. And I think I think there's a moment right now for the GOP to strongly try to define what it means to be a conservative in the era we're in now. And it certainly is not, I think, the bill of goods that this clown rodeo is putting out there for people. Well, I agree with that. And, um, you know, the... The numbers are down to a number small enough that we could probably meet in a small room. (laughs) You mean Republicans standing up for another point of view? Absolutely. Well, history is going to be on both of your sides in that argument. Well, let's just hope that history is on the country's side and that we survive all of this. I mean, I'm on board with that. Thanks for having me here. And we want to thank our partner, Audible. If there's a book you like, chances are it's on Audible. And right now, you can take advantage of the Words Matter Audible Holiday Special and get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. Give yourself or someone you love the gift of listening, the gift of a good book. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500. Audible, because words matter. Words matter. 